We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from John 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Seats. Let me, let me uh, welcome you to Resurrection Oakland along with Dave. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if I have not gotten to meet you yet, I would love to get to greet you and learn your name after the service. Uh, I learned, uh, read about uh, the story of a woman named Joan this week. This is a woman who's had a very, very hard life. Let me just give you some of the the bullet points. Uh, At 17, she was rejected from college. At 25, her mother died. At 27, she got married and had a child. But at 28, she was divorced because her husband was abusive. At 29, she was a single mother living on welfare and diagnosed with severe depression. At the age of 30, she considered taking her own life, and the only reason she didn't was because she developed a love for writing. She started writing. At 31, she published her first book. At 35, she had released four books, and she was named Author of the Year. And at 42, she sold 11 million copies of her new book on the first day of release. Who am I talking about? J.K. Rowling. Born, her birth name was Joan, but the world knows her as J.K. Rowling. 
You know what her story is? It is a story of incredible perseverance. She faced all sorts of trials and setbacks, all sorts of heartbreak and hardship, and yet she persevered. We have been in a series on the life of Peter, talking about how Peter is a picture for us of the Christian life. And last week we saw how Peter is a model of faith for us. This week we're going to see how Peter is a model of perseverance for us. Let me put it to you this way. It's one thing to get faith. It's another thing to keep it. Um, Our passage today is the second half of John 6, kind of a longer passage. To understand the second half of John 6, which we just read, we really need to understand the first half. In the first half of John 6, Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles. It's where he uh, multiplies the loaves of bread and the two fish, and he feeds you know, thousands of people. And what happens is, is Jesus' popularity really begins to take off. His, his social media feed is like going viral at this point. And all of a sudden, he, all these crowds begin to follow him. He's this very popular figure. And all of that actually begins to change in the second half of John 6. Because what we see in, you know, listen, we'll get to this in just a minute. Jesus says a lot of kind of strange stuff in this passage about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what I want you to just fix your eyes on here as we begin is verse 66. And verse 66 says this, From this time, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer followed him. One commentator says these are some of the saddest words in the whole Bible. People who are following Jesus begin to turn away from him and follow him no more. The crowds turned away, but guess what? Peter persevered. The crowds walked away, but Peter stayed. And the question that I want us to consider this morning is how can we do the same? Um, It's an important question. I mentioned this last Sunday. So many people are walking away from Christianity right now. So many people. Uh, Many of you in this room have known someone who's walked away. A friend, a spouse, a child. Some of you you are considering walking away yourself. You're kind of on your last... Your last attempts with Jesus. Uh, Some of you, you've already walked away. You walked away years ago, but now you're back. Why? Because you're wondering if you could ever, ever get back. Some of you have never started on the journey of Christianity because you, you look at the person of Jesus and you say, you know, there's some things about this whole Jesus thing that are so appealing to me. And there's some things that are so unappealing that I, I just really wrestle with. I can't get around. If you've never personally wrestled with this or known someone who has, let me assure you that you will. It is only a matter of time. Because Jesus never says that following him will be easy. In fact, he he promises just the opposite. He says it will be hard. He calls it the narrow way. He says there there will be many who walk away. And the question is, is how do you persevere? How do you... How do, think of it this way. How do you get to the place that Peter is in in this passage where he says, God, where else would we go? That is an incredibly secure place to be. You know why? Because if the one thing that you desire 
above all other things is Jesus. You know what that means? It means you cannot lose your one thing. You will lose everything in this world. You'll lose your youth. (laughs) You lose your beauty. You lose career. As you get older, you start to lose people you love. There's nothing you won't lose. Jesus is the one thing you can't lose. How do you get to where Peter is? Lord, where else can we go? How do you not walk away? It's a heavy sermon. Some of you are like, man, it's, it's, it's dark and gray outside. I was kind of hoping it'd be happy in here today. We're going to get happy. Stick with me. But we need to talk about this because this is, this is real. So here's where we're going today. I want to look at three reasons the crowds in this passage walk away. Three reasons people now walk away. And then a response to each. And here's what they are. An imperfect community, a hard teaching, and a disappointing God. So first, why do people walk away in imperfect community? Okay, before we talk about the crowd that walked away in this passage, let's talk about the crowd that stayed. Who was it that stuck around? In verse 67, it says that Jesus looked at the 12, not just Peter. He looked at the 12 and he said, do you want to go too? Who, who stayed? The 12 disciples. Think about that crowd for just a moment. We learn a lot about them in the Gospels. We learn that they are incredibly self-centered. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, there's a scene where James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, pull him aside. They pull him away from the other 10 And they say, hey, Jesus, here's a great idea. When you reign in glory, how about one of us sits at your right and the other one sits at your left? Very self-centered. They were elitist. In Luke chapter 18, you have all these little children that are trying to get to Jesus. And what are the disciples doing? They're trying to keep them away. Jesus has to look at his disciples and say, let the children come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. They had all sorts of prejudice. In Acts chapter 15, Paul confronts Peter. You know why? Because Peter thinks that God favors people from some cultures over other cultures. They were, <laughs> they were a mess. They were self-righteous. They were slow to forgive. They did not always practice what Jesus preached. Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament commentator, he says this, Jesus' enemies are not his only problem. His overzealous followers have historically been just as painful to him. And see, one of the reasons so many people have walked away or just never come to Jesus in the first place is because they look at the community of Jesus, which is what we call the church, and they say, what a mess. What a mess. I saw a study this week that said the top two reasons that people are driven away from Christianity, you ready for this, is because one, of a past experience with a religious institution, and two, because of the hypocrisy of religious people. Get this, 25% of people who identify, 25% of non-Christians say they trust clergy. This is not a good statistic for me. The odds are against me. Uh, guess what I'm below? I am below news reporters. 32% of the population says they trust news reporters. 
Pastors are at 25%. If you're an attorney, sorry, you're at 21%. All right, the odds are really, really against you. Uh, I read one survey this week of, uh, it was a survey of, of people who had walked away. And this is what it concluded. It said, it was not those outside the church that helped bring about their deconversion, but it was those inside. In other words, the push factors from church interactions were more significant than the pull factors from outside. What are the push factors? What are the things from inside the church that drive people away? Well, there's too many to name, but I'll give you just a few. Number one, sexual and spiritual abuse. Too many stories of that happening in the church. Not only has it happened in the church, but it has gone often excused. It has not been handled very well in the church. Let me give you another one. Social irrelevance, social disengagement. We, we the church, we have been silent on big issues like race and gender and justice. Here's another one. Political idolatry. Church is called to be a radical and a redemptive counterculture, but you know what we've done? We've just co-opted Jesus to fit into our political parties and ideologies. Here's the last one. Leadership scandals. Too many stories of pastors and church leaders who have failed sexually, who have failed financially. You see, given what a mess the church is, how should we respond and why should anyone stick around? Why should anyone stay? Why should anyone not walk away? I think there's a couple answers to that. Let me give you, here's the first. How do we respond? We ought to respond with humility. Humility and not defensiveness. Uh, for those of you here this morning who have been wounded by the church, let me just say as a pastor, of, as, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am so sorry. I do not know all of the ways you have been hurt, but God does. God, God knows and God cares. And for those of you who are Christians in this room and you're seeking to follow Jesus, can I just encourage you that whenever someone begins to critique the flaws of the church to you, do not try to win a debate. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Be curious. Grieve. So we need to respond with humility and not defensiveness. Second, we need to respond with confession. One of the greatest gifts that the church has is confession. We do it every Sunday in our service. Some of you are like, I've never been to a church where that's a part of like every, every service. We stop and we confess our sins together. Why do we do that? It's one of the greatest gifts the church has for the world, friends. One of the greatest gifts. You know, the world does so many things better than the church. But the one area where the church ought to just far surpass the world is confession. Confession of the ways we failed to love God and of the ways we have failed to love others. Our inability to confess, our refusal to confess, it hurts our witness is what it does. It makes us seem very defensive and self-righteous. But our willingness to confess, both individually and corporately, is such a witness. Who else is doing this in the world? 
Who else is saying, let's, let's, name, <laughs> let's name the things we've done wrong out loud? We need to respond with confession. And then here's the last, just the fact that the church is an imperfect community is not reason to walk away. It's actually reason to stay. For every single person in this room, it's reason to stay. You know why? Because every single person in this room is a big bag of inconsistency. We're all hypocrites. We don't, we don't, none of us live up to the standards that we hold other people to. None of us are who we want to be or who we ought to be. And you know what the church is? The church is the one place in the world where you can be honest about that and still welcomed, still loved. So this is the first reason people walk away as an imperfect community. Let's talk about this, a hard teaching. Um, at the beginning of this passage, Jesus says some really strange things. Some of you, you've been stuck on this the whole sermon. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. We think, is Jesus a vampire? What is going on here? Verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Is this cannibalism? This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Eating his flesh? Drinking his blood? I mean, we hear this and we're like, that's kind of gross, right? It's kind of gross. That is not how the crowds responded. Look at this in verse 60. It says that on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. It didn't sound gross to them. It sounded hard to them. And that word hard, it doesn't mean hard to understand. They weren't confused. It means hard to accept. Because in the very next verse, what does Jesus say? He says, does this offend you? <laughs> the crowds who were about to walk away, they were offended by Jesus. Which, which begs the question, what was so hard and so offensive about what Jesus was saying? When Jesus says, you must eat and drink of him to live, he is not talking about a literal eating. He's not talking, he's talk, uh, talking about a physical eating. He's talking about a spiritual eating. He's saying only those who spiritually take him in have eternal life. What is that all about? It's actually what is up here in this stained glass. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's from John 14, verse 6. And some of you are like, oh, okay, that's cool. How about that science and health stuff up there? What verse is that from? That's not from a verse. That is not a verse in the Bible. We are pro-science. We are pro-health. Not what I would necessarily put on some stained glass, but it made its way up there. But that is not a verse. Guess what? John 14, 6 is a verse. And I want you to notice the definite articles here. Jesus does not say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. I am the way to God. I am the only way to eternal life. And you see, that was a hard teaching then, and guess what? It is a hard teaching now. 
It was a reason people walked away then. And it is a reason that people walk away now. Because many people, especially people in Oakland, a place that is so pluralistic, where there's such cultural diversity, religious diversity, people say, you know what? There are lots of ways to God. And I can get on board with Jesus being a way to God, but the way to God, the only way to God, that's, that is arrogant, <laughs> that is intolerant, and that is exclusive. The, uh, the great modern philosopher Katy Perry, she says this, once you become aware that there are many equally intelligent and good people in the world who hold different beliefs from you, it's arrogant for you to hold your own views as higher truth. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that Jesus doesn't say, I am a way? We're like, just take the definite article out, Jesus. And he's like, no, no, no. the way, the truth, the life. How do, how do we deal with this? Well, here's the first thing I would say. The first thing is we need to see that everyone is exclusive. It sounds... To say that there are all religions are the same and there are many paths to God, it, on the surface, it sounds so inclusive, but it's not. And you say, well, how so? Okay, well, because what you're saying is, is that anyone who believes in a monotheistic religion, what is that? That's a religion that says there's only one way to God. That's not just Christianity, by the way. That's Islam. It's Judaism, and when you add it all up, it's about 55% of the world's population <laughs> believes in a monotheistic religion. 55% of the world's population says there's only one way to God. How can you say that it's inclusive to believe there are many paths to God when 55% of the world's population doesn't believe that. What, what, what is your view? To say that is to ex exclude their view. It's to say you, you have a take on spiritual reality that's right and theirs is wrong. It's, it's exclusive. And Stephen Prothero, he teaches at Boston College. Uh, he wrote a book called God is Not One. And what's really interesting about his story is he was actually born into a Christian home, uh, but then walked away from it later in life. He wrote this book called God is Not One, and he says this. He says, the mantra that all religions are one is a lovely sentiment, but it is, a danger but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. Cultural diversity is a fact, but the idea of religious unity is wishful thinking. It has not made the world a safer place. In fact, this naive theological God think has made the world more dangerous by blinding us to the clashes of religion that threaten us worldwide. While the world's religions do converge when it comes to ethics, they diverge sharply on doctrine. And these differences matter. They have real effects in the real world. Now, there's a lot there, but you get the point. What he's saying is that to say that all religions are the same, there's only one way to God. He's saying not only is that untrue, but it is also, ex it's exclusive of anyone who thinks differently. Everyone is exclusive. Which brings us to this question, actually. Of all exclusive beliefs, which set 
is most inclusive. If everybody's exclusive, who's the most inclusive? Which set of belief leads to the most inclusive set of beliefs? Okay, there are three views of heaven. View one says this. View one says everybody gets in. Everybody gets in. Even Hitler. Now, most people have a problem with that. So they go to view, they go to view two. You know what view two is? View two says good people are in and bad people are out. And there's a religious version and an irreligious version of that. The religious version is whatever, you know, whatever your God, whatever the, the, the commands and the rules are, follow those and you're in. The irreligious version is this. Be a good person. Follow the golden rule. Care for the poor and do justice and you're in. And, you know, that... Let me tell you, that is a recipe for exclusion. You know what the research, every psychologist and sociologist will tell you that the people who live the best lives, the people who live the most moral lives, lives that contribute to the good of society, they're people who actually were born and raised in stable environments. They had access to family, to education, and to money. And they were, they were shielded from trauma and violence and abuse. But people who, who didn't have access to those things and people who weren't shielded for those things, the, the chances of them living lives that are far more immoral and, and even committing crimes and ending up in jail is far greater. If you say the good are in and the bad are out, you know what you're doing? You are automatically excluding people who are born into worse situations than you are. Verse one doesn't work. Verse two doesn't work. I mean, view one doesn't work. View two doesn't work. What's view, view three? Here's view three. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He's the only way to God and it's not because of what you do. It's not because of anything that you do. It's because of everything that he has done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. It's called salvation by grace. You know what grace means? Grace means you do not have to earn God's love. You do not have to perform for God's love. You do not have to get it right for God to love you. You don't have to work for God's love. All you have to do, all you can do, actually, is receive God's love. Grace means that not just good people can come. It means that anyone can come. Anyone can get in. And I, I think that makes Christianity actually the most inclusive of all exclusive beliefs. And you know what it ought to do to us? It ought to make us the most inclusive people. Grace gives you resources to love people who are not like you. And I don't just mean who aren't like you in terms of your socioeconomic status or your race or whatever it is. I'm talking about people who aren't like you in terms of what they believe. People who believe different things. Grace says that God loved us before we believed in him. You know what that does? It makes you love other people before they believe what you believe. 
If you really get Jesus, you will actually honor honor people who believe differently than you, and you'll seek to even learn from them. Grace gives us resources to love people who aren't like us, and it also gives us resources to love people who don't like us. People who hurt us, people who wrong us, even our enemies. You know who sticks around in this passage? You know who doesn't walk away yet? You know who keeps rolling with Jesus in this passage? Judas. He's mentioned several times. And I think that is very intentional. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's not calling us to do anything that he has not already done. The gospel says that God loved us while we were yet his enemies. And grace means that we're now called to do the same. This brings us to the last point of why do people walk away, which is a disappointing God. What do I mean by that? Um, I've already mentioned the miracle that took place in the first half of John 6. What's really interesting is that right after Jesus performs this miracle, he feeds them, this hungry crowd in the wilderness with bread. You know what they say? They say, Jesus, do it again. Do the miracle again. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't do it. These are hungry people in the wilderness. And they're like, do it again. And Jesus refuses. He refuses to give them what they ask for. And they are disappointed. And so they walk away. That's what happens in verse 66. That's why they walk away. This is why it's so important to understand the whole chapter together. Jesus disappoints them and they walk away. Where has God disappointed you in life? What have you asked God for that he has not given to you? What have you asked him to take away and he has said no? And the reason that I'm asking this is because this is why so many people walk away. You know, there's a tendency when you first become a Christian to think, now my life is going to go great. And God is going to fulfill all of my dreams. And I'll be happy all of my days. And everything that I want, I'll get. And then you start walking this journey with Jesus. And you know what? It doesn't work out that way. And, and, and it's, not, it's not bad things that we ask God for and he doesn't give us. I'm, I'm talking about good things here. Say, God, give me a spouse. And God doesn't always do it. God, give me a child. And God doesn't always do it. God, take the depression away. And God doesn't always do it. God, take the addiction away. And God doesn't always do it. Take the cancer away. And God doesn't always do it. We ask God to give us a better job. To give us financial stability. Which is a good thing. And God doesn't always do it. Someone we love gets sick and we ask God to heal them. And then they die. And do you, that is so disillusioning, is it not? When you ask God for things and he refuses to give them to you, he disappoints you. It is so disillusioning. Elizabeth Elliot uh, and her husband Jim Elliot were missionaries to Ecuador. They moved to Ecuador 
One day, her husband, Jim, uh, went out to this remote village, this remote tribe, to share the gospel with them. And the people that he went to share Christ with speared him to death. And years later, as a widow, she was visiting some friends in Wales. uh, And these friends live on a sheep farm. And one day she was watching as this shepherd grabbed one of the sheep and, and took the sheep to this huge barrel of uh, liquid insecticide. This is how they cleaned sheep. They'd put them in these barrels and they would, they would dip them in these barrels to, to clean them from insects and you know, all sorts of diseases and stuff. She said she watched as the shepherd took the sheep, put them in this barrel and began to push the sheep's head underwater. And the sheep was fighting and gasping for air and the shepherd just kept pushing this sheep down to clean it. And she said in that moment, she thought to herself, she said, I wonder what it's like to feel like your shepherd is trying to kill you. Now, have you ever experienced that in the Christian life? You feel like you're asking God for things and God is not giving them to you. And you start to feel like God is against you. God is not for you, God is against you. There will be moments, you know, we've been singing a lot about God as a shepherd this morning. That's one of the main metaphors in the Bible, that God is a shepherd and we're his sheep. And there'll be moments in the Christian life where you will wonder what your shepherd is trying to do to you. You will wonder, why are you not giving me this, God? This is not not a bad thing I'm asking for. This is a good thing. And you will wonder why God takes away certain things. And you'll wonder why he is disappointing you like he is. And I do not want to pretend this morning to have all the answers to that. I do not know all of God's reasons. I do think I know one. And here it is. God is not trying to hurt you. God is trying to fill you. Fill you with what? With himself, actually. Crowds come to Jesus and they say, give us more bread. And Jesus says, that's not the bread you need. I am the true bread. Take me. You know, we need a category of thinking that says God can refuse to give us something that we ask him for and that that can actually be a gift to us. So many times we think when we ask God for something and he doesn't give it to us, it's a bad thing. But we actually need a category that it can actually be a good thing. That it can actually be a gift. How can it be a gift? It's a gift because sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that means that God's willingness to disappoint us can be a gift to redirect us to him because he is the only bread that can satisfy He's the only drink that can quench our thirst. In in one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, there's a scene where a little girl named Jill is wandering through the woods, and she is in desperate need of water. She's been walking for hours, 
and she comes upon this beautiful stream, but there's one problem. Between her and this stream, this only place for her to get a drink of water, is this giant lion. It's Aslan, who's the Christ figure of the book, and she is terrified. And I love the way that Lewis writes about this. He says this. He says, the lion said, are you not thirsty? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. And Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion said, there is no other stream. Friends, there is no other stream. There is no other bread. There is no other way. A Christian is someone who comes to God like Peter and says, God, where else can I go? You are all that I have. I've been everywhere. <laughs> I have eaten of so many breads. I have drunk from so many streams, from so many wells. And I always come out on the other side more hungry and more thirsty. And you see, it's actually only as you come to that place, God, where else can I go, that you will come to see that the moments in life where God is willing to disappoint you and you will have those moments, you will come to see that they are not a reason to walk away, but they are God's gift to you to drive you deeper into him because he is the only one who can satisfy you. No person can do it. No career can do it. No amount of success can do it. No pleasure in this world can do it. Nothing. Jesus says, I am the bread. Take of me. I, I said at the beginning, this is, this is heavy. Um, hopefully this has been helpful to you. But if you hear nothing else that I say today, hear this. The thing that will ultimately enable you to persevere with Jesus, the thing that will ultimately enable you to keep going, to not walk away, is not knowing that you will never walk away from him. It is actually knowing that he will never walk away from you. Do you see, amen, do you see how Jesus responds to Peter? Jesus says, Jesus, where else can we go? And I love what Jesus says. He says, Peter, have I not chosen you? That's an amazing response. I mean, if you know Peter's story, we're going to get to it in a couple weeks. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, well, Peter, you know, you want me now, but let's see if you want me then. 
He doesn't say, you know, you're not walking away from me now, but let's see if you walk away from me then. He doesn't say, you know, you know you're choosing me now. Let's see if you choose me then. Jesus says, have I not chosen you? Which I think is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you will not always choose me, but I will always choose you. I have a really good friend who has a young son, and when his son was seven years old, it was just he and his son in the car one day, and he said to his son, he said, what is one thing that you can always know will be true of me? And his little boy looked at him and immediately said, that you will always love me. And that was the answer. He got the answer right. He said, that's it. You know, that's right. And, but then his, his, his little son turned the tables on him. And he said, what is one thing that you, will always know to, you can always know to be true of me? And he thought, oh, I see what's happening here. You know, he's just reciprocating the love, you know, the assurance. But he thought he'd kind of play a little game with him. So he said, the one thing I can always know to be true of you is that you love ice cream. He said, that's true, but that's not it. He said, the one thing I can always know to be true of you is that you, you love baseball. He said, that's true, but that's not it. Finally, he said, the one thing I can always know to be true of you is that you'll always love me. He said, that's true, but that's not it. And then his seven-year-old son said, the one thing that I will always know to be true, the one thing you, that you can always know, know to be true about me is that I will always know that you love me. Friends, that is what a Christian says. The one thing that we can always know to be true is not that we will love God, but that God will love us. The one thing that we can always know to be true is not that we won't walk away from God in moments, but that he will never walk away from us. And that is what this table is all about. This table says that Jesus did not walk away from you even when it meant he, had, he would have to walk towards a cross. And what we find at this table is a shepherd. God is a shepherd. And he is a shepherd whose ways will not always make sense to you. And you may, be, you may feel in the dark this morning. There are things happening in your life that you cannot make sense of. And God invites you to this table where you find not just a shepherd but a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That means that you can trust him no matter how he is disappointing you in life right now. To come to this table is to say, Jesus, you are the only bread. I have been, I have been feasting on so many other things and I need you. Only you can fill me. And it is to say, Jesus, you are the only way. You are the only way. To come to this table is not to look to your own moral efforts or your own religiosity. It is to look to everything that Jesus has done for you. It is the table of grace. And to every person in this room who is a big bag of hypocrisy, who, who, who knows that we're not the person we want to be, who looks to Jesus in faith, you know what Jesus does? He looks back at you and he says, take and eat. 
on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for this table where you invite us over and over and over again to remind us that you alone can fill us. You alone can satisfy us. That we were made for you. And we will search and search and search until we find you. We will go hungry until we find you. Our hearts will be restless until they rest in you. So would you help us today to come and to locate that hunger, that thirst in you alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.